0: Today on the Loopcast, I have Professor Dove Levin, author of Meddling in the Ballot Box, The Causes and Effects of Partisan Electoral Interventions. So why discuss electoral interventions? Um, Obviously, our current sort of, at least in the United States, our current era and our current period is largely defined by an intervention that occurred in 2016. So there's lots of debate, both healthy and unhealthy, about what occurred in 2016, but it's still an intervention. So digging a little deeper, and the reason we, we wanted to discuss this on the show, is that to understand electoral interventions, you have to go through three sets of literature, the intelligence literature, the historical literature, and then some political science. There isn't, at least as far as I know, there isn't a concrete framework, a good framework predicting when interventions, why they occur, why they succeed, why they fail. And what Professor Levin has done with this book is create that framework. And it is very thorough and very well argued. I have gone through the book once for this conversation and I find myself having to go through it again because the framework is so richly detailed and it does provide the ability for an analyst or for a political science student to use it, pick it up and sort of use it to evaluate other electoral interventions. So it is a solid book. I do recommend picking it up. With that being said, please welcome my guest, Professor Levin. How's it going?
1: Okay. And thank you for inviting me. And thank you very much for your very kind introduction.
0: Oh, you're welcome. So I want to start off with a very basic question is why study elections and electoral interventions? So because... I think when we think about a democracy, we obviously have elections as the centerpiece of democracy, but at the same time, when you go to study it, when you go to break it apart and understand it, what sets an election apart from other institutions and processes within a democracy?
1: Well, uh, basically, uh, elections are are a special aspect of democracies. Because they are the key domestic method in democracies to replace a leader at the minimum cost and disruption possible. I mean, if you think about it, the ability of, you know, the electorate at one particular day or at a few weeks in the case of the United States to just, you know, Uh, go to a particular place, put in a piece of paper or, you know, mail in some piece of paper saying I want uh, a different uh, person or party to uh, run my life. And then some people count it. And then, you know, a week or two later or a few weeks later, you know, the people in charge uh, just, you know, uh, leave the office of the government and are replaced by the other people is, you know, one of the most um, cheapest and cost-effective ways possible uh, to replace a government, when you think about the other methods throughout history used for this purpose, you know, from civil wars to, you know, mass uh, protests. And uh, so that is one reason why they are special in a democracy. And likewise, you know, uh, much of the system or leaders' legitimacy was in the public, in democracies, depends on them, you know, being conducted in a way that is seen as acceptable to the local population. In other words, that the public inside that particular country will agree, you know, that person was actually supported by a majority or at least, you know, a significant share of the population and there were no, you know, unusual shenanigans by the standards of that particular time or place, so to speak. So a lot of the legitimacy of a, of a leader and of a, and of a government inside a democracy comes from the perception of that election being more or less reflecting what the public wanted. So those are two reasons why you know elections are important, and why, of course, related to that, why electoral interventions are important, because foreign powers can use you know, the same method that uh, democracies have created in order to replace leaders in the most cheapest and cost effective way possible to also replace leaders or maintain leaders um, that they want or don't want in that country um, in order to promote various uh, interests that they have in regard to that particular place.
0: Interesting. So when it comes to comparing elections to other methods of political change, so Elections versus lobbying or elections versus violent interference. Why, in your view, would elections take primacy over, let's say, lobbying or, you know, donating money to a political party or in in the most sort of extreme sense, violent intervention?
1: Well, um, I think that uh, there's two reasons. Um, first, basically, it's a very common mode of interference. In other words, uh, this type of intervention, uh, which I call you know partisan electoral interventions, occurred in 117 cases by the United States or the Soviet Union, and Russia, between 1946 and 2000. And which is just to give you an idea in overall, in general, occurred in one out of every uh, nine national level executive elections. And this is much more common than say other messages that are much more, you know, uh, in which are much more well known, like covert coup d'etat, so to speak, or uh, for that matter. So that is one important reason why to focus on that. We're talking about, you know, method of foreign interference that is much more common than you know other methods which are you know you could call it quote unquote more sexy um as you know um, covert coup d'etats. As for lobbying so to speak, um I would argue that um we are that basically the effects of these type of interventions is much uh, larger than lobbying. So without you know getting into a uh, the issue of lobbying specifically, I would argue that the effect on changing a leader or not is much larger than, say, um, the effects of the lobbying of various ways. So I would say that that is, these are two good reasons why to focus on it. First, that it's much more common. And second, that it has uh, much more significant effects than other forms of interventions.
0: Awesome. So let's hop into the book. So within the book, you define a term which you have already used and I'll repeat here, partisan electoral intervention. So define what that means and how you define it.
1: Yeah, when I talk about partisan electoral interventions, I am talking about the situation in which a foreign power intentionally intervenes in an election in another country in order to help or you know, harm one of the candidates or parties in it using various costly methods. And uh, you know, there's a very large variety of methods uh, that this includes, which have been done uh, throughout you know, in the recorded history of such meddling, which are frequently tailored to the specific circumstances of the country or the needs of the assisted side but I basically see that there's mainly six major methods for this purpose. You know, one is, you know, uh, campaign funding, you know, that literally, you know, the fund power comes in and they give, you know, funding to one of the sides. In a few cases, you know, literally like in one of those, you know, uh, crime movies, you know, some meeting in a hotel, the two sides meet. And one side takes out, you know, a suitcase or a black bag full of, of the cash and transfers it to the other side. Another message that I include under this means the dirty tricks, by which I mean various messages are designed, you know, um, to harm the undesired decide, you know, um, you know, e- you know, such for example, leaking embarrassing information on them, or, or spreading quote unquote fake news on them, bribing a third-party candidate to stay in the race or leave it. Or, you know, um, various messages that are designed, you know, to harm the side you don't want to succeed. Another message is, you know, various public or specific threats or promises, you know, um, like, for example, a short time before the election coming out and saying, if you vote for this guy, and you are going to suffer. You can forget about any foreign aid from us anymore. Or for that matter, a few weeks before the election coming and saying, well, if you... Um, vote for that person, you are going to um, gain uh, a brand, um, you know, more foreign aid from us or any other concession. It can, another message could be, you know, campaigning assistance, which I include, you know, that in the run-up to the election, you provide, you know, training to the preferred side in various campaigning, better campaigning methods, how to mobilize, you know, uh, voters to come, you know, to uh, the polling stations on election day, you know sending in campaign experts to you know to you know help to you know help you know that particular campaign you know developing you know a better ads you know better analysis of you know their election surveys and better you know a campaign strategy another message is you know giving or taking aid right in before the election you know. Before the election, if you want to aid the government, like, for example, you know, suddenly increasing, you know, the amount of foreign aid or other forms of material stuff you're regularly giving to them. Or, you know, like right before the election, you know, just cutting it off, saying, you know, and that government is awful, and we're going to now cut off your foreign aid by half. And if you do that two weeks before the election, you hope that, quote, unquote, the public in that country, you know, gets the signal. And another message is various you know non-material like, concessions you know like if that country for example wanted you to say uh, recognize part of its te- part of a uh, particular territorial claim or you know um, withdraw from a particular or you know give up some kind of not concede to something that you really wanted them to concede for a long time which is non-material you know like say for example recognize a wrongdoing they did to you sometime in the past. That is another way you can, um, if you are the find power, intervene in this manner. So these would be, you know, the main uh, type, this would be how I would define such intervention and the main message that are done for this purpose uh, that we know of.
0: Interesting. So in, in in the book, you you lay out, you argue that, Interventions, political interventions, partisan electoral interventions, excuse me, only occur when certain conditions are met. And could you outline those conditions for us? And how do those conditions lead to success or failure of partisan electoral intervention?
1: Yes, so I basically argue that uh, such interventions occur only when two concurrent conditions occur at uh, the same time. Um, First is is that the foreign power sees its interests as being uh, greatly endangered by a significant party uh, or candidate in that target. Basically, in some cases, the foreign power um, basically sees that candidate or party, either in reality or in uh, perception, as having really inflexible preferences on important issues to the foreign power they diverge from it. So, you know, um, and so, and those could be for various reasons, you know, like, for example, uh, being that due to that candidate or party being greatly constrained by their own political base, you know, they know that if they, say, change their mind on it, a nice share of their own political base, quote-unquote, will just, you know, not vote for them in the next election, you know, they're considered to be a horrendous, quote-unquote, betrayal. Or, you know, um, because they are very ideologically committed to, you know, particular uh, position, so to speak. You know, when they, they uh, work they worked in politics for 20, 30 years for a particular position and they are not going to change it now that they have been working for it for so many years. And that, you know, makes it really costly for a fine power to try to, you know, and change their mind, you know. And, to try to change what they perceive, or actually is a really committed actor on the other side to a different preference than yours would cost a large amount of resources of various kinds. So in that situation, um, other policy tools, like for example, you know, offering various carrots or sticks, you know, like increases in foreign aid or something like that, look like they're gonna like be very ineffective or relatively costly. So it is tempting for the great power instead of, or the foreign power, instead of trying, you know, to um, negotiate with the other side and change their mind, just to place the other side, or at least prevent it from coming to power. So that is one condition, basically, that basically um, a foreign power sees one of the candidates or parties in the target as, you know, something that is threatening one or more of its key interests related to that particular country. Another, which is an even more important condition, is that another um, significant domestic actor in that candidate, or sorry, in that country, is one who is willing to be aided by that great power in this particular manner, what we know today under the term of quote unquote collusion. And basically, the idea is, is that these type of interventions, unlike other forms of interventions, have to usually be, quote-unquote, inside jobs. And this is basically due to the fact that an electoral intervention, when you look about how it actually works, is basically an attempt by the foreign power to strengthen or create a domestic election campaign for a particular side in that country. So the foreign power in that situation needs the same types of... uh, of the knowledge that the local candidates have, so to speak. You know, um, they need to know, you know, what type of messages work, so to speak. They need to know, you know, what type of stuff lead the publics to become more supportive of a particular side and which reject them. And without that knowledge, um, they are are more likely to cause damage to the, the side they want to help rather than help it. So basically, they know that without, you know, domestic actors' willingness to cooperate and provided its knowledge, you know, on how to exactly help it win that particular election, its chances become so low that the local act, that that it really doesn't have any chances of success. So it needs to get the assistance of a local actor. But of course, for the local actor, that is uh, not always something they are willing to accept. You know, um, and they know that, for example, in many situations, such an assistance can harm them. You know, if it's covert and it's exposed, it could of course naturally come back to uh, haunt them. And likewise, if it's public, um, uh, basically many of the voters may, you know, not be happy about the power aiding them and not vote for them in another future election so usually um, so many times the the local actor has an incentive to just say no and reject the foreign powers offer of assistance on its side which we know many times happened in in uh, in uh, many cases so to speak and so as a result it only happens so, when, so the agreement of the local actor to say yes is not automatic. It only happens when they are what they when they are in what they perceive as serious political trouble. And um, without that agreement by the local actor to um, to accept such a or quote unquote collude, we know such an intervention doesn't occur because the foreign power knows its chances of success are too low usually. So, as a result, they are not willing to do it unless they get the local actors' uh, a willingness to cooperate with them. So that is why such stuff occurs. Naturally, I argue that from there, that also um, relates to the effects of, of this stuff on election results. Basically, um, one of the reasons why this stuff, I argue, increases the vote of the preferred side, and uh, basically, you know, frequently uh, helps it, so to speak, in what I find is an average of 3%, is basically because that um, there is a form of selection in this regard. Basically, um, foreign powers do not try to help, you know, quote, unquote, lost causes, and actors that are very likely to win anyway, are not willing to bear the various costs involved from, you know, getting the help of the foreign actor, and will just say no. So usually these type of interventions occur in cases where such assistance can quote unquote, move the needle for the preferred side, so to speak. And likewise related from that, one of the reasons I I find also that overt or public ones are usually more effective than covert ones. And one key reason for that is because that when uh, it's expected by the local actor that, you know, if you do it in public, it could cause a backlash, then it it basically tells the fine actor, you have to do it in secret. My public is going to get really, really angry if they know that you aided me in any way. So you can only do it in secret. So basically they only do such public interventions when they know that it will not lead to a backlash. So, and that is one key reason why it usually works in an effective manner because in an overt one, when there is no backlash, basically um, the foreign power can bring more resources to bear, directly contact with the voters, and outbid you know the two uh, local uh, actors, so to speak.
0: Interesting. So I want to maybe s- switch footing to the database you created, or the data set, I should say. And that's the an overview of US Soviet Russian partisan electoral interventions from 1946 to 2000. So, and so I think this is the first of its, you know, first data set of its type. And I want to start off with, you know, why did you create this and what was the need to create this and walk us through your thinking process? You know, how did you go through and code what is and isn't an intervention and you know, just walk us through that process, because this, I think this is fairly unique in terms of the overall research environment, in terms of this data set.
1: Yes, uh, well, um, um, one of the reasons, this isn't um, the first data set of its kind, and one reason I created it was in, in order to be able to estimate um, the effects of such uh, meddling in a systematic uh, manner. How do you define such an intervention? The reason, the, the logic under, the, under defining it was basically when I was coming to develop this data set was to try to have it close as possible to how people actually uh, uh, define it in real life, quote unquote. In other words, I looked and saw, you know, I tried to get an idea from, you know, existing cases. What would what you know were the type of stuff that were usually included as you know um, as things that you know are denounced as such meddling or you know people are accusing of others and I tried to make sure that my definition included uh, you know um, most uh, of those uh, kind of uh, acts so to speak so I made sure to include both the covert and the overt acts so to speak. Uh, in uh, this uh, regard. And I also made sure to, to, uh, what's the name you call it, uh, when I was uh, thinking about uh, how to develop it, I wanted to make sure that I'm getting the whole range. In other words, you know, some research on it focused only, you know, on covert activities, a few things here and there talked about overt stuff, and I wanted to make sure that I'm getting the whole range of these kind of uh, activity, so to speak, which, you know, what people perceive as being this type of uh, meddling, so to speak. So basically, uh, what I did is that I first, you know, looked for um, existing uh, literature on this topic, you know, historical scholars, you know, critiques of U.S. foreign policy and things like that, that sometimes, you know, had some... uh, preliminary uh, lists of, you know, uh, this type of uh, meddling. Then, you know, I took a look at them and carefully, uh, cross uh, checked them, so to speak. And they made, and you know, it was, was sometimes, you know, these were really all the claims, you know, the United States intervened here, Russia intervened there. So then, you know, check them more uh, in depth. And then, you know, I am, um, after creating this initial list, um, and I added other possible cases noted in reliable sources, you know, after carefully checking them, you know, things like, you know, like, for example, um, various uh, congressional investigations of the CIA activities, you know, like the Pike and Church Commission reports, you know, declassified CIA materials, you know, we're talking about the United States, and, you know, um reliable histories of uh, CIA and American uh, covert uh, operations. And you know, memoirs by former, you know, CIA uh, agents, you know, or US government officials in general, you know, a lot of CIA agents when they are in their job are very secretive, but then when you know they retire, they start to become very talkative and like, you know, memoirs in which they say about how I as secret agent X. Prevented country W from becoming a yeah, communist, so that was very useful or histories you know of academic research and various uh, American uh, foreign activities and likewise when it came you know to um, to you know um, to Soviet scenes you know or Russian scenes you know memoirs of former KGB agents and defectors to the west, histories of um, the, of the Cold War from the Soviet side. And um, likewise, this thing called the metronkin Archive, which is, you know, this very unique um, historical source of basically this former um, this former uh, uh, KGB agent, a guy called Vasily Metronkin who basically was a KGB archivist for 12 years. And during those 12 years, he basically sat the whole, he basically created everyday Summaries of all of the documents he came across in the KGB archives. And then at the end of the Cold War, basically ran off to the West with his uh, summaries and published with the help of uh, Christopher Andrew, which is a British historian, these two fat volumes on all what he uh, saw in the KGB archive. So that was another very um, useful source. And then, you know, I uh, basically to make sure that uh, these uh, source that I did not miss anything, I, w- I did, you know, keyword searches, you know, food, food documents, through these volumes of the uh, U.S. fund policy documents called uh, the the and um, base, and they also through uh, newspaper archives, in which, in order, you know, to uh, catch, you know, any public uh, cases. And then any cases which were not, um, what's the name you call it? Any cases that were not clear, I then basically went multiple times to the US National Archives and looked, you know, for the uh, any available diplomatic documents. So, you know, in some cases, even, you know, these databases of CIA documents in order to check whether it was or not um, a particular case of a such an intervention. Um, I basically um, continued in this up to 2000 in this early stage, because I wanted to make sure that they would have time for the covert interventions of this kind, you know, to come out. In other words, basically, uh, I discovered while I was working on it, that it takes time for this type of, when this stuff is covert in nature, unlike, you know, the case of 2016, it usually takes a while until it comes out, So I wanted to make sure that I would get, that there would be time for the covert stuff to come out. So I stopped in 2000 because when I was uh, doing this, when I was constructing this data set, this was the early 2010s. So I decided that something like, like around 10 years of a gap would be a good time to let, you know, the data, you know, any covert activities of of this kind, you know, to come out, so to speak. And um, what's the name you call it? So, um, That is basically how I uh, constructed this data set. You know, basically digging, you know, through these various sources, carefully cross-checking them, and, you know, um, making sure to confirm them with, you know, various reliable uh, sources, you know, that are derived whenever possible, you know, from, you know, that particular country's own, you know, know, uh, sources, so to speak. And that is how I covered it. I wanted to make sure that it was a definition that was both, you know, uh, theoretically coherent and covered um, uh, basically uh, what uh, what we what most people when they talk about such fine meddling mean uh, in uh, practice, so to speak.
0: So, with constructing this data set, were there any surprises or any anything that sort of? popped out at you in terms of examples of interventions that, for example, did you find a case that was very much a stereotypical example of electoral intervention success? Did you find anything that was just very much a failure? You know, what did, you know, the gray space look like? What did that sort of in between, you know, very clear success and very clear failure look like within the data set?
1: Well, uh, there were a few surprises. Uh, you know, uh, one of the surprises was, was how many of these cases there were, so to speak. I mean, uh, when I began uh, collecting this data set for my, uh, for the earlier dissertation and with my PhD dissertation, from which, you know, uh, which was a very early version of uh, my book in the early 2010s, I was not really sure that I'd have enough Cases to do a statistical analysis, that is um, I was not, you know, I wasn't sure that I'd have enough cases. And then when I finished collecting all of the data and I found that there was in total 117 interventions of this kind, I was actually, you know, uh, pretty surprised. So that was uh, one wow, so to speak, you know, wow, there were that many. I myself did not expect that there would be so many and that it would be, that this was literally something that happened in one out of every nine National level executive elections during this period. The second thing that um, surprised me, so to speak, was um, the fact that uh, a lot of these things occurred without the other side intervening. You know, um, during the Cold War era, um, and they were, and you know, the common stereotype about the Cold War era was, you know, that um, it was a, str- that a lot of these struggles were these proxy wars, you know, or proxy war-like, you know, that when one side came in, the other side came in also, and that a lot of the fighting, at least that's the stereotype, or other types of interactions were, you know, um, boxing matches between the United States and the Soviet Union, or, you know, boxing matches between proxy of the United States and proxy of the Soviet Union. But what they actually found, so to speak, is that uh, in most of these cases, even during the Cold War era, only one foreign power was uh, intervening, so to speak. In other words, it's usually in most cases, one um, a foreign power was intervening for one of the sides in the election, and the other power was staying out and was not getting involved in any way, so to speak. So that was for me another surprise, which eventually when I developed my uh, theoretical argument, I understood why, so to speak. Basically, in many cases, only uh, one, uh, what's the name you call it, um, a domestic actor would have a willingness to accept, you know, such foreign involvement, and and other actors would not have such, you know, incentives to do that, so to speak. So that was, you know, a second surprise, you know, that in, that there's actually very few and, um, you know, situations, what I call double interventions, where the United States intervenes in one side of the election and the Soviet Union intervenes on the other side of the same election. You know, it's something like 7%, I believe, uh, even in the Cold War era. So, related to that, you know the thing I discovered is that the cases that were the most famous of such meddling before, you know, 2016, you know, like Italy 1948 or uh, Chile 1970, so to speak, where we did have a situation where, you know, the United States was intervening on one side and the Soviet Union was intervening on the other side, were actually the exceptional and unusual cases in uh, regard, so to speak. In other words, those cases which were the most famous before 2016 for such meddling were actually the exception, so to speak. So that was, you know, uh, surprising, you know, that the cases that are always given when, peop- when educated people before 2016 would have be mentioned this type of uh, meddling were actually the unusual cases that did not represent how most such interference uh, happened, so to speak. As for um, gray, um, gray, you know, uh, types of, um, what's the name you call it, uh, um, in, in interference? Well, and actually, you know, when you try to code stuff and you follow a clear definition throughout, you know, uh, um, a whole project like that, you get uh, some cases which are uh, not easy to code, so to speak. So I did whenever possible, I as I tried whenever I had those cases to try to collect more and more data. You know, I would go, as I said, when I had any case which was uncertain, I would go, you know, to um, the U.S. National Archives, for example, if it was an American case and tried, you know, to go through documents and hoping finally I would find, you know, a document that proved, you know, the United States was intervening or not intervening, or, you know, I would consult some... Uh, and um, his, historians, which were experts in this regard, or uh, things like that. And uh, basically, my, my uh, guideline in this regard was that if I am uncertain in any way, I leave it out. In other words, my guideline was that if I had a case where I was not 100% certain that there was an intervention, you know, the evidence was not conclusive, that case, you know, stayed out. Only cases where I was completely certain that there was actually an interference were kept in so to speak thankfully in most cases it was not difficult to you know do that you know the overt interventions are in most cases pretty clear cut because you know that's the goal of such overt interventions you know you are trying to send a message to the target's public and you know vote for him not for him not vote for this guy not for that guy so to speak so you know they are usually pretty clear and obvious and it comes out very clearly, you know, from, you know, uh, the newspaper record and other sources that, you know, this was an overt intervention, so to speak. You know, it's literally the newspaper articles are saying, you know, foreign power X wants candidate W to win, so to speak. And as for the covert ones, and usually in most cases, we, they, you can find, uh, you know, reliable evidence one way or the other. So there were some great cases And my goal was, you know, to minimize them as much as possible. Usually I succeeded. And in the few exceptions that they were not, those great cases were left out for, you know, maybe one day I'll find it one way or the other, so to speak.
0: Interesting. So I want to switch footing again and discuss the 2016 Russian intervention in the U.S., Elections. I want to because your your research is very is very provocative, and we have very much a very contemporary. Four four years ago, and if you can use your the framework that you've created to analyze that, and more and more importantly, you know, I know it's kind of out of band. It's set in 2016. Your data set ends in 2000, but at the same time, I think you make this important book important point in the book which is, you know, it is an out-of-sample at, at case, but you still need to look at it, still need to analyze it. So if you can, just walk us through, you know, how you pick apart the 2016 election.
1: Yeah. Um, well, uh, basically, I, uh, I basically um, saw it as, I basically analyzed it and, You know, I did not expect it, of course, to happen, you know, like all of us, you know, completely didn't expect it to happen. But uh, nevertheless, I thought that it would be a useful case to analyze because it first showed, you know, the relevance of the argument to the present. And because it was yet to happen when I was formulating my arguments and why it happens and its effects in the early uh, 2010s, I couldn't quote, unquote, fit my argument to that particular case. So I thought it was a very useful case to analyze, you know, from the empirical point of view, given that uh, basically um, this was a case that came out after I uh, basically, you know, already formulated my arguments. So, and you know, it was was outside of my, uh, the time of my data set, as well as my historical uh, cases, so to speak. And I overall, you know, um, found that it fit pretty well with my predictions on when it occurs and uh, its effects, you know, uh, what's name you call it, as I uh, predicted. So as I would have predicted, you know, uh, what's name you call it, and uh, from what we know about um, the 20s, about why Vladimir Putin intervened in this uh, election, so to speak, um, We know, we basically, it seems that Vladimir Putin was very, very and deeply afraid of Hillary Clinton, and he saw her, from what we know, as an existential threat, because he thought that, uh, you know, she would, if she was elected, would start quote-unquote cold war against Russia in response to uh, Vladimir Putin's annexation of Crimea in 2014, so to speak, and um, Likewise, as I expected, uh, what's the name you call it, um, the circumstances where this intervention occurred inside the United States when it came to the domestic act of as well. That is, we now in retrospect, sometimes think about 2016 as, you know, it was an election in which Trump was bound to win, but actually he was in a very bad political shape in the run up uh, to 2016, you know. No one expected him, you know, to win, he was behind, and seems like fundraising 20 to 1 behind Hillary Clinton. A large share of the Republican Party in the run-up to the election uh, for, uh, refused to endorse him, and quietly uh, and quietly uh, tried to uh, harm him in various ways. You know, like for example, the 2016 GOP convention. A lot of you know former presidents and many senators, many sitting senators and governors refused to you know participate. And, you know, sending a signal to a lot of the Republican rank and file, you voted for this guy, but we don't really like him. So, you know, um, what's the name you call it? So that was exactly the type of situation in which I would have expected, you know, a domestic actor to be in a bad enough shape to, you know, be willing to accept, you know, foreign involvement. And as we know from uh, the Mueller report and other sources, there is some very strong circumstantial, evidence that there was actually, you know, possible collusion in various uh, routes, so to speak. It's not yet fully conclusive, but, you know, we have multiple pathways uh, which show strong circumstantial evidence where that could have occurred, you know, for Manafort and, uh, for Manafort, for, you know, Michael Flynn, or maybe perhaps even uh, directly uh, for members of the Trump family, so to speak. So that fit pretty well uh, with my uh, prediction, so to speak, uh, in this regard, you know, uh, it's, uh, what's the name you call it. Um, and likewise, it um, fit pretty well uh, with what I expected about uh, its effects. You know, I find in my book, when I was analyzing this case, which I analyzed, you know, both, as I said, to see if my argument is still applicable post 2000. And of course, because everyone was very interested in that case. I find that, in, in, that in this social intervention increased the vote share of the preferred side by around the two percent, so to speak. And and I find this thing for analysis mainly of you know the effects of um, the leaks and hacks of uh, the DNC and the Clinton campaign. In other words, unlike a focus of a lot of you know the commentary and disregard you know on the social media and you know the fake news. I focused instead on the effects of, you know, all of those leaks and hacks, you know, all of those uh, leaks that came out for WikiLeaks, you know, about Hillary Clinton and the DNC. And I find, and I found, you know, that it ha- that these things had a pretty significant effect, you know, like, for example, the document dump that, that uh, WikiLeaks had for Russia right before the Democratic Party convention, which supposedly showed, you know... Um, the Democratic primaries being rigged against Bernie Sanders seems to have shifted um, views negatively within significant shares of the American public against voting for Hillary Clinton. And likewise, and this, this, for example, I find it, you know, from pre-election polls, which I found that had, you know, relevant questions. And likewise, another leak in this regard for which I found, you know, a pre-election poll that I could analyze, you know, those... um, the, the leak of the speeches in early in early October, 2016, in which you know, um, in which uh, Hillary Clinton was shown as supposedly um, saying to various uh, executives of big companies stuff which was supposedly in contradiction of her stances otherwise, also had you know pretty negative effects on her uh, prospects, so to speak. I found that you know. Though that leak of that speeches that came out a few hours after, you know, the Access Hollywood tape, you know, which famously had Donald Trump boasting about his his supposed plans uh, to sexually harass women and admissions of them supposedly doing that in the past, so to speak. And I found that, you know, this leak of these uh, speeches took out something like 50.5% of the effect. Of that uh, Access Hollywood tape. In other words, basically, that Access Hollywood tape had a really bad negative hit on uh, Donald Trump's support, as many people expected. But that counter leak from a foreign power, in this case, unlike the Access Hollywood tape, of you know all of those Hillary Clinton speeches, took out something like half of its negative effect, so to speak, and weakened that its overall uh, effect, so to speak. And I likewise found that uh, there was general public interest in this regard. In other words, when you check for keyword searches of WikiLeaks, which is you know uh, the body for which most of these leaks came out that Russia hacked, and there was a big increase in such uh, keyword searches all throughout the United States uh, by a fact by a factor of I believe uh, something like from a, a very big increase in the amount of um, of searches for it once these uh, leaks began to come out for WikiLeaks, both throughout the United States and especially in the key swing states. And I find that basically these, these uh, what's the name you call it, in, in, in keyword searches were an amount in the key swing states, in other words, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and also Florida, and then the number of such searches was larger than the vote shares by which Donald Trump won those uh, states, so to speak. In other words, basically, there is clear evidence, as I would have predicted from my model, that such, uh, what's the name call it, interference, is able to uh, move the needle for the preferred side. The only thing I was surprised a bit was that um, covert meddling of this kind still moved the needle after its exposure. What I thought when this first came out in 2016 that the mere exposure of that act by Russia would make it completely ineffective. You know, when I heard, you know, that when I was in 2016 and I heard about the such intervention, I was sure, oh, we now know all about it. That means that no one will care about it. Um, but the, clearly the exposure was not enough to eliminate all its effects. And probably my assumption is that, we need, that it, you needed, you know, more evidence that this was actually connected to Russia in order to counter the skepticism in some demographics um, that this was actually a Russian involvement. But overall, uh, what's the name you call it, that is what I um, found in regard to the 2016, uh, Russian intervention in the American case, it fit pretty well with uh, my predictions on when it occurs and its uh, effects. And, you know, as on election results, the only thing that um, I, was a bit unexpected to me for me was that the fact that the exposure, did, which was shown, by the way, a, a major operational failure on the side of the Russian uh, GRU and uh, and you know with the Russian government and did not weaken or eliminate its effects even
0: further. Interesting. So we've we've, we've come to the, the end of the show, and usually when we end the show, we always ask our speaker to give us something to think about. So when I, when I say something to think about, either a provocative question or a question that you found provocative that's worth exploring or implications of your work that are... You know, worth digging into in you know future with either students or yourself even, but you know, give us something to think about to chew on as as a speaker as an audience, you know, what have you?
1: Well, uh, implications of my work. Well, uh, uh, what's name you call it? Unfortunately, my implications are at least when it comes you know to the future in general and they are not very happy because I expect such interventions to continue and to remain very common and to have and you know determine uh, election results in many countries in practice so my one implication of my work is given that the conditions why this stuff occurs are pretty are likely to persist into the future you know where a lot of foreign powers are likely to see in the future local actors, you know, uh, as threats to them, so to speak, with all of these major political shifts we've been seeing in the last uh, decade or so inside even many Western countries, we're likely to see a lot of domestic political actors in deep political trouble and willing, you know, to accept, you know, such, uh, you know, uh, such assistance in order to quote unquote, save them. So in general, my implication in this regard would be expect more of it and a lot more of it in the next uh, few decades in a lot of places, so to speak. So 2016 is not the last case, and we're going to see more of it a lot in the future. That would be one, you could call it a public implication of my work. Um, and when it comes, you know, to... Um, And, of course, that implies, you know, as to public decision-makers that, you know, you need to think carefully how to uh, deal with this type of intervention, so to speak, and uh, how to prepare accordingly. As for scholarly implications, well, there is, I believe, uh, multiple ones. First, you know, that this is an important topic that needs, you know, more uh, research. You know, I and other scholars have began studying other aspects of it, like the aspects of what its effects are, you know, post-election, so to speak. You know, if the preferred side won, and so, if the preferred side that you wanted to put in power, if you are the find power, came to power, what's the name you call it? What are the effects on that country? So me and other scholars have found that there are such effects, and many of them are not, quote-unquote, happy, you know. It has, you know, negative effects on domestic stability, you know, increases the probability of terrorism, increases the chances of democratic uh, breakdown and things like that. But there's still a lot of uh, research in this regard that is uh, left to be done. So another implication is, is that this is an important topic, so to speak, that needs a lot more research so that we can understand it much better and uh, you know, understand uh, what are its effects and its impacts in various ways, both on the country and maybe perhaps on the intervener itself in uh, some cases. As for, you know, um, more wider implications to our scholarly uh, literature, so to speak, well, it certainly sh- it's certainly another piece of evidence showing, you know, when we talk about wider literatures, it certainly is another piece of evidence showing that uh, leaders matter, so to speak, and that uh, you know that a lot of that you know that other countries also deeply care about who is in power in another country. So you know um, assumptions that some uh, IR series have, like realism, that you know leader, that you know the first image doesn't matter or can be effectively ignored as many times, you know, um, is uh, probably uh, inaccurate. uh, What's the name you call it? It's further evidence for that, you know. Of course, other scholars have talked about it when it comes, you know, to regime types and other literature, but this is, you know, additional proof in this regard. It also shows, you know, that a lot of stuff, like for example, election results that were many times seen uh, by some scholars as, you know, only, only, you know, um, um, affected by domestic concerns. Actually, sometimes affected by international concerns, so to speak. So, you know, when you study elections, you need to take into account um, such interference. And, you know, if you are, say, running a pre-election survey in a country and to, to know what is the thing that affects the results and you discover that uh, say, uh, what's the name you call it, a week before the election, a fine power is making a public threat, make sure to add that question to your pre-election survey, so to speak. And uh, what's the name you call it, and, uh, and uh, what's the name you call it, and, um, and actually another implication in this regard is that um, one uh, key um, theory that we have in international relations, which is you know the democratic peace theory, clearly doesn't uh, purview towards uh, non-violent acts, so to speak, because we know that many of these interventions were done uh, by the United States towards other full uh, democracies. And we know other full democracies like the UK that sometimes in a few cases also meddled in this regard towards other full democracies. So the purview of the democratic peace clearly doesn't include in non-violent uh, uh, acts of uh, these uh, kinds. So these would be both my uh, public implications of this work which unfortunately are not very happy as well as you know um, the scholarly implications of this work which are you know some of them uh, more positive like for example here's a field of research which is waiting just people to come and uh, dig further and try to find uh, what is happening with it.
0: Awesome. 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 Well, we've reached the end of the show and I would like to thank our speaker, Professor Dove Levin. He's the author of Meddling in the Ballot Box, The Causes and Effects of Partisan Electoral Interventions. This is a great book. Go ahead. If you're an analyst or a policy student, this is definitely worth your time looking through and reading. Again, thank you so much, Professor Levin.
1: And thank you very much for inviting me.